Guess what? I'm moving country again. I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe more. Where's home? Home's everywhere. I'm an expat. Hello! I'm Pauline. Welcome to a new episode of Meet the Expats. Today I am with Nicole Webb, a Sydney journalist and newsreader who is going to tell us all about her adventure in Xi'an, a city of northwest China. From culture shock to acceptance and making new friends, this incredible journey has led Nicole to release a book about her experience, China Blonde. Hi, Nicole. How are you? Hi, Pauline. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, definitely an adventure. That's definitely one uh, way of putting it. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) Thank you for jumping on the podcast. It is uh, lovely to have you. And I'm very excited about Uh, to hear about this book and all the adventures that led to it really (laughs) (laughs) yeah so let's jump in and start by the beginnings how how did the decision to move come up yeah okay um well that was a big decision actually because I was um 35 well to put it in the right perspective I met my husband on a blind date um at 35 and um you know I was at that age where I was thinking oh my gosh I'm probably not gonna meet anyone is this what my life is gonna be and I'm like you know okay you've got to just start you know doing things for yourself (laughs) yeah and uh, I was a newsreader at that point obviously and I'd worked quite hard to get to that stage of my career and of course I met James and um, he was the one and we got married you know um, not so long after and he was in hotels and he said to me very you know early on in one of our dates that you know the hotel hotel industry likes you to progress and they like there's opportunities to move overseas and I really dismissed it quite quickly too quickly obviously (laughs) because you know not that I hadn't wanted to live overseas I always had but you know, in my 20s, I'd always sort of put my career first. And I was a bit scared to go overseas and do what everyone else was doing in case I sort of lost my place in that lineup of journalism, you know, graduates trying to get a job. So I sort of stuck with it in my 20s. And then of course, my 30s came and I thought, well, you know, that time's come and gone to live overseas. Right. So I sort of dismissed it. And then we were married. And then maybe a year into um, our marriage, a job came up for him in Hong Kong. And I'd been there before and only very briefly, so I didn't really know much about it, but something just clicked and I had a good chat with my mum and something changed in me and I thought, you know what, um, I I should probably take this opportunity. We should both take this opportunity. You know, you only live once. And I'd always been up for, yeah. for living a life less ordinary and um, I thought, let's do it. So he put his hat in the ring for that job and he got the job. And lo and behold, you know, um, things move super quickly in hotels. It's like, okay, you've got to be here in like three weeks time. Oh no. (laughs) I haven't processed the information yet. (laughs) I know. So I was like, oh my goodness. I was, you know, trying to kind of resign from my job and, you know, pack up the house as you do and get everything sorted. And I was going to go after James anyway, so he left. But, of course, that very same week, what do you know, we found out we were pregnant. So all of a sudden, you know, you're leaving to live in a foreign country, which I know many expats will have probably, you know, felt this having kids overseas or whatever. So, you know, you're leaving your job, your home, your family, most importantly, and um, starting fresh in a new country with a baby. So there we were. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
a lot of new changes. <laughs> a lot, a lot to take in. And, you know, um, I mean, Hong Kong was an amazing city and it, it had everything you could sort of wish for. But again, you know, culture shock always hits hard, doesn't it, when you go somewhere that, mm. you, you know, is sort of foreign to you and a different language and different food, different, you know, you don't know anyone and you're trying to navigate all of these things. And usually if you're trailing as the trailing spouse, you know, your husband's busy or your wife is settling into yeah. a new job, so they're not really there with you. So it's a lot of adjustments. Hmm. And I feel Asia can be a little bit harder for Westerners because there's just a way of thinking and values and traditions that are so different from what we're used to. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. I think the cultural nuances and, you know, just the way that they live, it is very different, you know. I mean, and, and especially from which we'll talk about more later, obviously Xi'an was even more different, you know, and I really learned mm. about different cultures and upbringings and history and all of that that contributes to sort of the way people live. So it was definitely, yeah, an eye-opener. And, of course, when you're, you're blonde in Asia, you get a lot of attention, <laughs> <laughs> you know, both good and bad, so, and with a baby and she's a chubby little thing and, you know, very fair and blonde and, you know, we, we kind of got all sorts of questions and, you know, Asian cultures are quite direct, aren't they? So I remember they would, you know, I just had a and we'd only been in Hong Kong a few months and you know we'd be in the lift or something and little Chinese lady would be saying are you feeding with your breasts or what are you doing and I'd be like (laughs) I'm like oh my gosh that's a bit you know personal isn't it and I think we went to McDonald's when she was maybe two and she might have had a French fry or two and we were getting looked up and down by these older ladies and, you know, had oh, a, wow. just all those, you know, I remember holding her and even, they, you know, them telling me I wasn't holding her right. And as a new mum, you're so paranoid no. anyway, you don't know what you're doing. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, I, even stories, you know, when I'd had her and went to the doctor and I remember he said, you know, because Ava was big, compared to all the Asian babies, they were tiny, you know, mm. and she yeah. was obviously much bigger. And I remember as I walked out of the doctor's office, he said, mm, big mama, big baby. <laughs> I was just, you know. You're <laughs> <weight, I>, baby. <laughs> you know, you're so self-conscious as it is. I was like, oh, my God, did you really just say that? <laughs> you know, you, I guess you learn over time, as you do in any country, that it's all harmless. You know, you take it on yeah. the chin while <laughs> yeah you have to not take it personally <laughs> no you can't you definitely can't you've just got to you know roll with the punches I guess and so how was your settling in or even the career piece for you in uh, Hong Kong then yeah that was kind of I think that's when it was it hit me hardest you know more so than even moving to China where things were you know more limited I think because I guess I had been a newsreader for a decade and a journalist for 20 years. And I've said this a lot lately, you know, I guess you don't realise how much your identity is tied up with your career and especially being a newsreader. Um, So I think when I left it behind, even though I wasn't sure if I would ever go back to it, it was quite confronting for a while there. And especially when you look at, you know, the visa application form and it says housewife and you're just like, you know, that's that's everything I never wanted to be. And it was quite a struggle just getting over that. And I think it was really important for me 
to try and find something of my own. And, and it took a while. Yeah. I just, you know, especially when you've got a new baby and you're sleep deprived, you know, mm. you, you can't even take a phone call. So things were pretty limited for a while there. And also I think it took me a while to realise that I could actually do more than just, I wasn't just a newsreader who could read an auto cue, which yeah. is what I'd sort of come to think of myself as. And a friend sort of had to point it out one day that, you know, I've known you for a long time and, you know, there are a lot of things that make up who you are and you've got 20 years of experience in media, not just, you know, reading an auto cue. You know, you're a journalist, you're a producer, you're a reporter, all of those things come into play. So once I kind of thought yeah I think you're right you know I I can do all that I sort of started to get a bit more confidence back and then you know I guess it's word of mouth and you start I started I think one thing also is I realized that being overseas a lot of expats might think this is you kind of get the freedom to do things that maybe you might not normally do um, in your own country I think you reinvent uh, yourself a lot because you don't have you don't have the connections yet. So yeah. you have this whole freedom of I'm not going to be judged. No one knows me yet. And one of my first episodes, I think it, it was Kim who said this. I, I know it was very well said that every every move, every new expat experience, she always saw it as a great thing, saying. I can be the best version of myself in every place I move to, which I thought was really nice, where she really pushed herself even more to in the good sides, in the new new faces of of her personality. Yeah, I think you realize that you can grow and each place you go is going to give you more experience and more skills and tools under your belt, even as a person and with more wisdom and credibility as you get older and, you know, just living in different cultures broadens your mind. And I think that all adds up to make you a better person and and probably a better employee or a better worker or, you know, you make choice, you learn that you have that freedom to, like you say, you're not judged. And I think that was a thing for me too. I would never have probably written articles and sent them out to popular websites or magazines because I didn't want to be, you know, critiqued by my colleagues of all things, you know. So you just kind of do what you do. And I wouldn't have probably put myself out there to MC because I was already doing what I was doing. And I remember they rang me up somehow through word of mouth and asked me to MC a gig and Ava was nine weeks old and I was pretty terrified because I'd never done that. You know, even though I'd read the news, this was quite different with a, a live audience, yeah. you know, people out there watching you. <laughs> um, which you know, as a newsreader, you just see the cameras, so you don't see all the people. Right. So I remember just thinking I was really nervous and of course I'm probably, you know, three or four sizes bigger post-pregnancy body and trying to find an evening dress and breast pads and all of that and leave my baby for the first time and it was all daunting but the thing is once you do it, you know, you feel so much more confident that you've actually achieved something and I felt like I was just chipping away and starting to get a bit of the old my old self back but, you know, a renewed self I guess like you say, you re- define who you are yeah exactly it's all about actually taking that step and being able to reflect on well what have I done that I can actually transfer to a new job which is quite Mm. difficult Mm, it is because you really you you even though other people may not pigeonhole you you pigeonhole yourself you know we can be our own worst enemies can't we and you know we lose confidence and new mums lose confidence let alone being in a new country 
So, yeah, it just takes time, I think. And so this was all in Hong Kong then? Yeah, so this was all in Hong Kong. Yes. So we ended up staying in Hong Kong for four years. So, oh, wow. Which was great. I mean, we could have easily stayed there longer because we really just fell in love with the place and the city. And, you know, it was such a, an exciting city, I think, to be in. And, you're, you know, you sort of feel like you're at the center of the world because you can travel mm. anywhere quite easily. And it's the financial hub and it's got that those beaches and the tropical side as well as the big city so it was fun and you know you meet your expat tribe as you do and you find your mojo and I found you know I had enough work to give me a sense of self and purpose and Ava was you know loving it and then of course (laughs) when you just settled as with most expat stints you get the call to move somewhere else (laughs) Exactly. Once you're home, it's time to leave. Yeah, exactly. That's always a way, isn't it? Yeah. Did it take long actually in Hong Kong to feel home and feel settled in? Um, you know what? I always um, say for me, it felt like a pregnancy. <laughs> you know, a pregnancy is right. nine months and you feel uncomfortable yeah. in your body. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like your body. Mm. And, you know, you just start to get comfortable with it and you have the baby. And I feel like each place I've been, it's taken at least nine months to start feeling comfortable. Um, you know, yeah. I've kind of felt a bit out of sorts and not sure if it's the right move and you know, should we go back or whatever? And I think I find once I hit that nine month, 10 month mark, I start to feel a bit more comfortable. I can remember the first time flying back to Hong Kong from being in Australia for a holiday and just, you know, what it comes over you, doesn't it? That feeling that this is home. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe after the first year or so, and then you start settling in more and you know, I guess having a new baby, it took a little bit longer because I couldn't do those things that new expats would do in Hong Kong and go out as much and all of that. But yeah, I think by the time I really hit my stride (laughs) and it was time to go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So was this uh, still with the hotel industry of next yeah, step next it was, your husband. It was. Yeah. so James was number two in the hotel he was in in Hong Kong and of course you know to further his career he really needed to be general manager of his own hotel mm. and lots of hotels within the company were sort of coming up on our radar and all sorts of places you know and I remember googling what it would be like to live in Bangkok or Bali no. or South Korea you know and you you know, Exciting, you, yeah. you, kind of, you start imagining even before he's, you know, had a job interview, you start yeah. picturing what your life's going to be like in these places. And then, of course, it falls through or he doesn't get it or he's, you know, the top two or whatever. Yeah. And, of course, China just kept coming up because they were building so many hotels. You know, it's just a beast, you know, that's just operating yeah. so quickly and changing. And I think in one year they had earmarked 80 ho- new hotels. So oh, wow. it was kind of clear that, China wasn't going away and we even got offered a job in Wuhan obviously where coronavirus Mm. first emerged so um, (laughs) we went up there for the weekend and took a look and it was very different to Hong Kong because you know Hong Kong has that western influence as well as the east so we kind of thought look we just you know we had that sinking feeling I don't think we can do it 
and we said no and another place came up in the middle of China and we just said no again and then we just thought look we can't keep saying no you know there's only so many times you can say no and Xi'an came up at the western there and you know I did a quick google as you do and it looked like a livable city it's quite an ancient (laughs) city and you know there were lots of ancient historical um, temples and bell towers and a city wall and it looked really beautiful and I just remember saying to James we should just do it if we just let's just go. <laughs> so you say this one looked like a livable city versus the the other two that had come up what was that criteria that said okay this one I can live in? You know what I think you know what Google's like what <laughs> I think it was just <laughs> on Google there were lots of red lanterns and it was a like a vibrant colorful city um it had the terracotta warriors which were quite a well-known tourist attraction you know whereas another city that we had been offered I googled that and it said you know this city is called Nowheresville <laughs> so the more I googled the more they said you know that foreign uh, Chinese people are just learning to drive and they like to flag foreigners down to park their cars <laughs> and I just remember okay. thinking, oh, you know maybe that's not for us and you know Wuhan yeah. even though looking back Wuhan was probably similar to Xi'an and it's just grown rapidly and has got this massive population at the time it was just very heavily polluted and, you know, driving in, yeah. there were lots of sort of dilapidated buildings. And it because I, probably if we'd done the same in Xi'an, we might have thought the same and said no. You know, so you mm. just, I mean, you just don't know. Um, you never know how a city's no, going to change. No, and, and you don't yeah. really know what it's like to live there, do you, when you're Googling yeah. it? So I think we, I just kind of felt like we've got to say yes because, you know, China's not going anywhere. Got, you know, you need to get this role as GM and let's just do it and see. And, you know, I kind of still had that sense of adventure in me and I thought, you know, even if we really hate it, it's not forever and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, you can always leave. And my mum always said that to me. That was her best advice. You know, you're never stuck anywhere. So, yeah. you know, I thought what a great experience. Let's just go. And we were going to be living in the hotel. So, I mean, that that cushioned us, obviously. We were yeah. you know, really privileged and lucky to be doing that. So off we went. And, again, it was one of those things where James was given a few weeks to sort of pack up and go. And, pack up. Yeah. And then he sort of came home the weekend. We finished with the apartment we were living in and off we went. So we went from living in a on the 43rd floor of this towering skyscraper oh, wow. <laughs> to living on this sort of fourth-storey hotel that was opposite a 1,300-year-old pagoda. So extreme. <laughs> different lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, so different, so different. I just remember waking up that first morning just thinking, what have we done, you know? <laughs> it was just so foreign to me, you know, peeping outside the hotel windows and James had gone to work and we were just by ourselves and you know it was just so so crowded so many people bustling around not a white person to be seen so many you know street um, carts of food foreign food and just cars going every which way buses tuk-tuks bicycles with you know four and five people sandwiched on them and beeping the noise was just deafening you know it was just everyone beeps 
So it was just constant. And then the first day this siren went off and it was like one of those war sirens in the old days where you kind of run to your bunker or something and it would just yeah. <laughs> going for like a minute and I remember texting James saying, do you know what this is? And he didn't text <laughs> back for a while and then he must have kind of asked around and found out with some, you know, war commemoration siren. But it was just all those foreign okay. noises and sounds and sights and smells and you know what it's like in a foreign country you just it it's quite quite daunting isn't it when you first arrive I think just to understand what's going on and find your remarks just yeah even just you know you get a newspaper delivered and it was in English but it's kind of like reading a paper from Mars isn't it because you don't recognize any of the stories or you don't know what they're talking about nothing seems familiar to you and you know the coffee they didn't have the same coffee they didn't have you know milk skim milk or anything and just little things like that but you're it's just out of your comfort zone isn't it and I guess when you've got a three-year-old as well and you've got to try and entertain her (laughs) and find something to do and not let your fear sort of shine through yeah. What about the school and everything for a three-year-old in Sien? I mean, were there any international international schools? Yes, there were two international okay. schools, but it took me a while to figure this out. Um, and, you know, there's no real sort of daycare centres as we have in Australia or there's you yeah. had to go to school or nothing, and it was nine to three for a three-year-old five days a week, which seemed quite intense to me, although Hong Kong is quite similar. So I was sort of expecting it. So we we went to one school for an interview, but that was down sort of a sort of ramshackle laneway with these, you know, mangled sort of meshed up power lines and rubbish. And mm. I remember thinking, oh, you know, the teachers were not very attractive. And it just seemed a bit, it was far away from where we lived. And then another school rang and said, look, we, we take, um, children Ava's age so I went there and that was you know that was quite nice a sort of leafy street and you know very few western children though I think there was one westerner in Ava's class and a lot of oh, Chinese wow. um, who had green cards from other countries and a lot of because local Chinese couldn't go and a lot of South Koreans because there are a lot of factories and South Korean sort of headquarters there like Samsung etc so um yeah but none of them could really speak English so it was a really I guess an eye-opener for Ava being there um but again in the long term great because that's how we met most of our expat friends in the end because there were you know that if there were any expats in town with kids that their kids were going to go to that school one of two schools so it was a small pool of expats so that's kind of eventually when she started school and but in the beginning I would pick her up at 12 o'clock because I just thought it was too long for her at that age Mm. you know so I didn't really meet anyone for quite a few months and then I sort of realized eventually that I really am going to have to find some friends because Mm. you know you need to have someone just one person some social interaction and support Yeah. yeah and I had been kind of adamant at first that you know I found my expat tribe in Hong Kong I don't really need any, I don't want to, I don't think they can be replaced. Yeah. I sort of had to get over that and realise, you know what, you need to find someone just to have a coffee with. So I eventually Mm. 
started picking her up at three o'clock and that's when I started sort of seeing another blonde lady there and you know and <laughs> and a few people had also um messaged me I had a blog which I'd started in Hong Kong and someone had messaged me on that to see if I knew where there was a hairdresser that did blonde hair so we became oh, really good yeah. friends so yeah you you end up meeting people that way yeah making friends is is tough I feel that when when you're a student it's quite easy but as soon as you start working I feel it it does take a lot more effort it does doesn't it and I think you and it's it's kind of weird you end up being friends with people that maybe you normally wouldn't be friends with and you end mm. up I remember walking in the friend that I met with the blonde hair at school pickup invited us to this big um kind of afternoon shindig at her house and I remember just being so nervous thinking oh are these people are they going to be my sort of people am I going to like them are they going to like me what should I wear am I I better not drink too much don't talk too much you know and walking into this room and it was just like a like a kind of global summit you know there's just people from every nationality you can imagine and probably all of Xi'an's expats you know (laughs) um, in one room and everyone's so different but then I guess you've all got that common bond haven't you that you've actually stepped out of your comfort zone and you've had that desire to move to another country or something in you that's wanted that adventure so even if I found we were kind of quite different we had that common theme amongst us I guess yeah yeah Yeah, and there's a bit of this support piece that comes in where expats are supportive of each other of we know we've stepped out and we know it's tough so we will be there for each other Yeah, I know that's what I love is you kind of become each other's pseudo family, don't you? And very quickly, you know, I remember um, one of my really good friends, you know, said she would put me down as her emergency contact at her son's school. You know, we'd only known each other a month or so, but that's kind of what you do. You do become so close because you don't have your own family around and you rely on each other for everything, don't you? You know, and especially in a place like Xi'an where, you know, even just medically, we couldn't just turn up to a, you know, a doctor or anything like that. So, you know, just even, you you know, ringing each other, have you got this medication or do you have any of this or, you know, it's just, you just need each other from sort of dusk to dawn, really. Or dawn to yeah. dusk. <laughs> <laughs> so what was life, day-to-day life in uh, Xi'an like? Oh, gee. Um, well, I guess a lot, of, a lot of it you could say was kind of like anything that I would do here. I sort of had my freelance work, which I still did. Um, I guess the differences were that I had to, we were chauffeur driven to school, which sounds all very glamorous, but, you know, you can't drive down because it is that manic. And if you do, you're a very brave soul. Yeah, it's just, you know, the car every which way. Um, crossing over you know four lanes of traffic and beeping and there's no use of the indicator so it's crazy so and so we had one of the hotel drivers that would pick us up every morning but usually they couldn't speak English very well if at all so you know if it was so how did you they were were kind of for school they would be kind of given the address um, by the concierge of the hotel who could speak English Um, and you would just hope that get there and I guess after a while they they knew that that was they all knew the way there but if I wanted to go anywhere 
different. It was always a bit of a drama. Like you'd have to, on Sundays, I'd have to email my whole week's kind of routine. So there was no spontaneity. Even if I wanted to go for a coffee, I'd have to say on Thursday at midday, I'm going to this cafe and have it in Chinese and hope that Mm. they could find it. And then obviously as time went on, I learned to speak a little bit of Chinese so I could kind of say to them, pick me up at this time or I'll see you right back here in two hours, you know. So, of course, I felt more comfortable. But in the beginning when I really couldn't say a thing and I just sort of had my phone and you would think, oh, my gosh, if my phone battery dies, you know, I'm just in the middle of of the city. I don't know how to get back anywhere, you know. Um, So it was kind of a weird relationship with the drivers, which I do talk about a little bit in my book because there's sort of some, Mm. you see these people every morning and every afternoon and the drive to school was like an hour often, if not longer. Oh, wow. It was a long way because mainly because the traffic was just so bad. You're just kind of, Mm. you know, foot on the brake the whole way and bumper to bumper. So there's no, it's nothing fast about it. So, (laughs) you know, it would probably be, you know, a, you know, two and a half, three hour round trip for me just to drop her to school. So by the time I got home, you know, and did the normal things, and then you'd have to go back and pick her up again. So yeah, most of your day is gone yeah, in traffic. I mean, sometimes I would just say, drop me off at a cafe close by that we knew and I would just work there for the day until mm. we pick up because it wasn't worth coming back. Yeah, so, I mean, life was sort of the same but so different, you know. They're just so, you know, just going out to the supermarket or the hairdressers was just such an effort because you know you've got to psych yourself up and look at what you're going to say in Chinese and how you're going to do it. Yeah. So it's nothing simple about it. You know, you, it's just always such a big effort to do anything, even just getting a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all about preparing each move that you're going to make. It is, it is. You're like, how am I going to do this? And what am I going to need to say? What words will I use, you know? But, I mean, we were lucky again in the hotel. We had you know, the cleaners could come twice a week. So that was really great, even though they could sort of couldn't speak English um, either. But, you know, (laughs) yeah, it was a good life, but just one that took a a lot of getting used to. You know, in the beginning in the hotel, I would have, you think in a hotel, if you've got that do not disturb sign or button on that no one's really going to enter. But in the beginning, just people would come randomly into my house all the time, you know. Just, I remember waking up one day and just hearing ni hao, ni hao, and there's like four people in the hallway, and I'm like, oh, okay, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and we had these sort of big floor-to-ceiling windows, and I remember sometimes, you know, people would be outside just with their hands up against the glass, peering in mm. because we were like, I guess, goldfish in a bowl, you know, and they wanted to see these weird uh. because we were just so random to them, you know white people yeah. with white skin and hair and you know they kind of my hairdresser said to me you know in the beginning I look at you and you know you sort of eat and breathe like us but you look nothing like us and he's like how is that possible because today, <laughs> you know so many of them have only really seen westerners maybe on the movies yeah and that's it at all you know and it was a tourist spot outside the hotel so lots of Chinese from even more remote villages would come and they had probably never seen a white person at all so they would just be like wow you know and especially with Ava trying to pick her up mm. and touch her and pull her hair and 
you can't but you know in the end you get used to that you know at first you feel like everyone's staring at you and you know it's yeah. just you're so self-conscious but I remember in the end I probably didn't even notice it after two and a half years <laughs> yeah you got used to it then I guess <laughs> yeah funnily enough you just adapt don't you yeah it is so surprising to us to see that you've never yeah you're a bit of a tourist attraction yourself when when you can be in China it can feel quite intruding uh, a couple of friends of mine blonde also went to China and they had people touching their arms or standing to take pictures without even asking them (laughs) I know and at first I would get really kind of angry and you know I can understand I would be like don't touch don't touch her you know one I remember this sort of old toothless grandpa picked up Ava on his shoulders and I, I was so terrified but as you kind of time goes on, you realize it is just really harmless. They're not going to do anything. Yeah. You know, they just are quite fascinated and curious. And mm. and when you realize that, you know, you can have a bit of a laugh and, you know, I would start taking photos of them as well, you know, just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it just, you kind of realize, you know, that they don't mean any harm by it. But initially it is mm. frightening. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine because it's completely different to what you're. We're used to this. We're used to a certain privacy and distance in mm. the end between. between and people. everyone wants a photo with of their little. If they've got a little child, they want their child to have a photo with Ava. So they're sort of pushing this poor child next mm. to Ava, and she's sort of looking at them. And you know, in the beginning, she would be like sort of crying and screwing her face oh. up. And by the end, she was quite a professional as well and would just sort of stand there and have a little photo with them all. And <laughs> I guess she got you to it. Do you think this fascination is just because they're intrigued because there's this difference or is there also a fascination around jealousy? Or h- how do you feel? Um, no, I don't. I think I think they are. They really embraced us, you know, and while hmm. they are they're you know I really tried to find out I did a lot of interviews in the end for my book too with a lot of locals just to Mm. really find out what they think with a translator obviously Um, but just because you know they are quite different to us and you know there's that westerners see them as sort of pushing and shoving and cueing you know that they don't wait and all of that and spitting and you know their hygiene and all of that is different to ours so I wanted to sort of look at why they're like that and you know I guess a lot of it stems back to history and survival of the fittest in a country where there is 1.4 billion people you know all they know is to just you know if they stand and wait they'll never get anywhere and I think also you know they just for so long it was just you know they greet would the greeting was chulama which means have you eaten today and that was sort of how they would say hello because that was what it was like for so long and really they've only started mm-hmm. developing in the last sort of 30 years or so I mean they didn't even have cars 15 years ago so you yeah. know and they don't have you know even crossing the street I would wonder why they never listened or looked at the green man that says go or stop they just went <laughs> but you know if they never had that how would they especially the yeah. older, older generations how do they know you know, so it was. It's quite fascinating, and I think 
so much of China, while we sort of see on the news that they've got this burgeoning economy and this new elite wealthy, mm. you know, population, there's still so many of them that are really in poverty. I mean, there's just starting to be a middle class now and they've got this new money right. but they don't know what to do with it, you know, and essentially they're just kind of going along. I guess they're just happy they've got a roof over their heads and that, that their country is kind of moving forward and they don't really hear all of the politics that we sort of see all the time. You know, they look up to their yeah. um, president because all they see is that their country's moving ahead. So it's really quite different. You know, they don't notice the censorship. Obviously, that's one of the things I noticed when I moved yeah. there. You know, the TV would cut to black when anything sort of came on that they didn't want uh, us to see, like anything about Hong Kong, wow. you know, and while we would go, It's crazy that you can actually, you, you actually realise it, that you, yeah. you're very conscious about, oh, this has been censored or this I is, there could be something on right now. And there is like, you know, an internet censorship bureau up the road and that watches everything. And while I was so conscious of it coming from, you know, a country of such freedom of the press and all of that, if you ask the average... And being a journalist, I guess, also helps. (laughs) Absolutely. But if you ask the average person on the street, they are not really even aware or they don't really even care about censorship because as far as they're concerned, they get all the news that they need. Mm. It's not something that even bothers them. And, you know, many of them have never even been to Hong Kong. You know, there's all that feud at the moment with Hong Kong and the mainland, but the mainlanders largely are quite innocent. They don't even really know anything about Hong Kong. So it's, yeah, it's quite fascinating. They really are. I mean, they have the same values as us, as everyone wants to belong and wants the best for their family, but they've just got such a different history and and uh, you know a way of living I guess in the past yeah yeah it really comes down to the traditions that that have lived on yeah yeah and they do live on so much there you know everything so if I was sick or anything it would be like you know you haven't drunk enough warm water or you know you haven't worn Mm. enough you haven't worn enough warm clothes it was all you know they really go by these traditional methods and you know it's interesting yeah so I'm just going to move on to the recommendations I ask for it. I ask each guest for a bar, a restaurant, and a gâteau blanche. So a spot of your choice. What would be your picks, yeah. in, Sean? Well, it's it's kind of tricky because you know what things change overnight. Literally in Xi'an, yeah. a bar can be there and then it disappears. But I know that the Western Hotel is still there opposite the Pagoda, which is a big place for tourists. <laughs> so if you do go to the, the Pagoda, the Wild Goose, Big Wild Goose Pagoda, there is a fantastic Japanese restaurant in the Western, which we loved going to. And I was thinking of bars and I thought if you need something that's sort of more um, Western-like, there was a, a bar that or a restaurant bar that we often went to called Pete's Tex-Mex and they do really great quesadillas and margaritas. So we would often go and have a long lunch with the mums or, you know, a dinner. So that was fun. Yeah, for a change. Yeah, just if you wanted to have that a bit of a Western feel and feel like you were sort of at home. Um, And, of course, there's a million Chinese, great Chinese dumpling places and Mm. all of that. And, you know, there's some great, little spots to go to like you know the fabric markets and um 
you know, the, the city wall, there's some little calligraphy markets just underneath that and just really fascinating places. Yeah, but as I said, hopefully they're all still there because it's just changed. <laughs> it's just so fast moving. It's incredible. Right. And what would be your your favourite uh, carte blanche spot of your choice? Oh, gee. It's tough, really. Like a place that I would go to in Xi'an. I think I like the city wall because I know if you go up there, it's kind of like a moat. Well, it's a moat, but a city wall. It's 13 kilometres and it stretches around the old mm. centre. And, you know, you can see everything from up there and you can see Xi'an and you can ride a bike around it or go in a little golf cart. And you've just made me think of one other place. The Muslim Quarter is amazing. You have to go there because that's there's a big Muslim population from when the old uh, Silk Road travelled from Europe and um, people would come by camel along there to Xi'an. And so there's still a huge right. population in Xi'an of Chinese Muslims. So it's like okay. these, these markets and it's they're just so bustling and busy and all this Muslim Chinese food and there's a great mosque there. And it's just a great thing to see and, and witness with your own eyes, really. Oh, nice. Seems yeah. very, yeah, very different yeah. uh, to what we know. It is, yeah. Yeah, I'll link it in the link it those places in the in the comments then. Okay. Well, the, my very last question is around a song. What would be a song that represents for you your journey in <laughs> China or in Xi'an? <laughs> oh, it's so hard to know. I mean, when you said that, immediately the song that came to my mind, which is John Denver's Country Roads Take Me Home, which is not, <laughs> but even though, I mean, because I remember that song as a little girl singing that in the back of my parents' car, but I'm, really what was unusual is that when my driver, who didn't speak any English in that car, would be taking us to school, sometimes he would play that song and it was so random oh, wow. to be having that song in the middle of China this Western song from my childhood and he would be kind of bopping along to it and then Ava and I, we would start singing it in the back seat, you know, at the top of our lungs and it just, you know, the words kind of resonated as well, you know, with China and what China is and and with, you know, sometimes wanting to go home and it was just such a, a strange, surreal moment, you know. You're in this foreign country so far from home. So, yeah, I just think about that song. Did you feel home in, in, in Xi'an? Um, while I don't know if you ever feel like you belong, you mm. we no longer felt like we were aliens and we did, okay. you know, and when the time came to leave, we, we really didn't want to leave. We were really enjoying oh. life and we had found some really incredible friends and we had come to understand I guess China a lot more and we were comfortable and you know once you're comfortable somewhere it's always a lot easier and yeah so I think it's always going to have a little piece of our heart for sure yeah and if we want to know more we can definitely read your book (laughs) (laughs) you can that really details a lot of what I've been talking about it goes into all of those stories and the trials and tribulations and the great things of being an expat in China yeah exciting so where where can uh, we actually find your book now you've 
it was published early October. Yes, it was. So, you know, um, one of the best places is my website, um, NicoleWebOnline.com, which I can send globally um, and I can sign it for you. <laughs> Otherwise, the, the ebook is on Amazon and I think the paperback will be soon. Um, and there's a few places in Australia, but website is probably the best okay. spot to start. Yeah. Right. I'll link that in the comments then. Thank Perfect. you. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining. I learned a lot. I was really interested about the view, uh, what you were saying about the traditions in China and how it sort of models the way they think and how we as Westerners can feel surprised and not always understand them. I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it is. I think, you know, it's something that Westerners are still you know, we're not familiar with because we just see those no. those headlines all the time, especially at the moment with coronavirus. Yeah. And, and we can be and we can be very judging also yeah. on our side. Uh, absolutely. So I hope you know this podcast and the book will just explain a little bit more about you know what what the real China's like. Yeah, definitely. Well, I wish you all the best with the book. Thank you so much for joining, and guys, thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes to put a rating and a couple of stars and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pauline.